Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in connect coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. They afford us the opportunity to talk about topics that we are uncomfortable with and many do not want you to know, because it might change your mind and your opinion about what you have always believed and you might decide to take a different path than the so-called compassionate and free hospice. The intent of this show is to create awareness to people about the dangers of enrolling in hospice without knowing the facts and not the fiction that many hospice staff will tell you. It's about valuing the sanctity of all life from conception through a natural death. Not all hospices have gone rogue, but many of them hasten deaths. The fact that hospice services were meant to be compassionate and helpful in the dying process at the end of someone's life. They were meant to minimize pain for the actively dying, not to drug a person into unconsciousness until they cannot think, talk, eat, drink, or swallow, and ultimately hasten their death with drugs, starvation, and dehydration. That's a horrible way to have the last chapter of your life executed. And yet, this is what is happening across the country. Hospice was intended for people who had diseases that could no longer be treated with medication or with medical procedures such as dialysis. Today, people who can be treated with medication or procedures, who are not terminal, and they could live longer than the death sentence they receive are enrolled into hospice. The criteria now allows for people with dementia or who go to the hospital too often or can't physically take care of themselves. No one can predict when someone will die unless they hasten the process. Hospice staff are trained to manipulate and tell the patient and the family whatever they think will cause them to enroll. If having a nurse come to you each week or someone bring a meal or two, or provide sitter services, or do light housekeeping is what you need, then that's what they can do for you. It's painted as a win-win situation, and they just want to help, and it won't cost you anything, right? Except they don't provide compassionate care, and they don't follow through with their promises, and your life will be cut short in the payment is the ultimate, you or your loved one's life. Michelle Young-Dewers provides details of this and other fallacies in her book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice. 
She was a hospice respiratory therapist and saw the quotas and the treatment of hospital and hospice patients firsthand. I encourage you to check this book out for yourself, as it is very informative. I think you'll be shocked of some of the information that she gives us. Another good resource to check out is Halo, H-A-L-O, voice.org, which has a 24 by 7 helpline. If you have questions while your loved one is in the facility or you plan to enroll them, you can call 888-221-HALO. If you are already aware of the dangers of hospice and you want to help, they're always looking for volunteers to help answer calls, and they'll train you. This site also has information on why a living will is not a safe document to have in place to protect yourself. They have sample medical power of attorney forms per state, and I encourage you to check this site out. There are many other sites with useful information, and I'm happy to share them with you. Comment TS Radio at this link, or you can email me directly at marciajoiner2018 at gmail.com for more information, or if you would like to tell your story. After your loved one is enrolled in hospice, in many cases they start going downhill rather quickly. If they're in home hospice, they will leave a comfort kit with the family that has everything you need, just in case, of course. The kit contains many drugs, such as morphine, which is also called roxanol. That will start your loved one on a path to death if you follow through and administer at their directions. And it will also have anti-anxiety medications such as Ativan, also called lorazepam, or antipsychotic drugs, maybe Haldol or Seroquel. Why do they need this? Are they anxious? They weren't anxious before, and they have no history of that or of being psychotic. The drug Haldol is prescribed to treat bipolar or mood disorders or Tourette syndrome. Seroquel is used for mood disorders also, depression, and bipolar disorder, which typically our loved ones don't have any of these. Yeah, they get irritated when they're being held against their will or they don't know what's happening to them or they suspect something's happening, but they just don't know after you give them these drugs. There are warnings on these drugs. They're called black box warnings. And they can be dangerous for the elderly. But, well, if your loved one's in hospice, it really doesn't matter if it's dangerous for them because the intent is to hasten their death. Or they add fentanyl, in my mom's case, to the mix, which is 100 times more powerful than morphine and 50 times more powerful than heroin. Let that sink in. Each of these drugs individually can cause bad side effects. Some of those, drowsiness, dizziness, depressed breathing, confusion, nausea, hallucinations, irritability, mood change, lack of appetite, constipation, and this list goes on. But give the person a combination of these drugs together, the symptoms are deadly, and they know this, and if they don't, 
they should not be administering them. And if they do, they are complicit in hastening death. So one will wonder why their loved one is acting different, sleeping all the time, or they won't eat or drink, or they cry out or they moan, or they can't breathe, or they throw up. And this list goes on. When these symptoms happen from the drugs they give them, they say the person is dying, and they give them something to supposedly counter their effects, except this is a lie too. It further enhances the symptoms, so they now can give them more morphine or more Ativan or Haldol. It's a vicious cycle that they do all the while acting like they're doing it for the patient's best interest. It is all part of the comfort kit meant to euthanize the person. That is what is happening to our elderly. If a person is not actively dying when hospice is brought in, it is my personal opinion, as well as others, they shouldn't be enrolled. Hospice has crossed over barrier lines, and they need to get back in the lane where they were meant to be. For a person who is actively dying and needs to minimize pain, not drug a person into a coma and ultimately hasten their death. It's much cheaper to euthanize them than it is to treat them who may require years more medication and doctor or hospital visits. I'm sorry, I go on my rant sometimes about this because it really irritates me when people do not understand what's going on. Recently I was on a site defending another one of our members in the group murdered by hospice and hospice nurses were in their attack mode of telling the individual that these things don't happen. This is not true. When they were looking at medical records that describe something and they're saying this is not true. They either know that it is true and are covering or they don't understand what's happening in their own field. The fact is after the opioids and the antipsychotics are given, the person is now dying, but not from the disease, but from an overdose of the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. If you hear nothing else that I say tonight or remember nothing, remember this. A young, healthy person would die from the combination of drugs, the frequency, the duration, starvation, and dehydration. So how is this not murder? It is. And let me clarify something. If your loved one or you has end-stage cancer or renal failure and you can't be treated with drugs or medical procedures and you're in pain, then yes, I believe a small dose of morphine is appropriate. I don't think anyone should have to be in pain. But hospice is using a one-size-fits-all and those not in pain are being given morphine more frequently in larger doses than would be needed to just minimize the pain. A patient and the family should be told what the drug will do before it is ever administered. They should be told that the person will no longer be able to communicate with the family, this is it, there should be signed consent to give these drugs to anyone. But the fact is, they're not just minimizing the pain. They have started the process for euthanasia of your loved one, and they do not tell the truth. They do not let you know what's going to happen, and they do not have consent or permission 
to give these drugs. Personally, I believe many of the elderly people who died in the nursing facilities with COVID were also helped to cross over with the same toxic drugs. But since toxicology reports weren't done and their loved ones didn't suspect anything because they don't know what we know, who knows what really happened behind nursing home closed doors? I'll say this. My sister and I know what happened behind those doors because we, as well as many of our guests, saw the effects of the drugging and the horrible deaths after hospice staff gave their compassionate care. We saw what they did to our mom, and we were powerless to save her in spite of our efforts. We were lied to every step of the way. People need to wake up and see that these things are not just happening. They are planned events, and the elderly and disabled are being called because they cost too much money and they're just too much trouble. This year, the Medicare, Agri- Medicare Medicaid aggregate cap annual cap is $29,964.78 per patient. Hospice, whether profit or nonprofit, is a huge money-making organization. If your loved one is in this situation and you suspect that something is going on, trust your instincts. If it looks wrong and your loved one quickly turns for the worse, get them out. And don't listen. Don't believe what they tell you. If you have questions, call the hotline 888-221-HALO and ask them for advice. Someone's life hangs in the balance, and that is what this show is about, trying to warn people and trying to save a life, one at a time. Tonight, my guest is Mary Ann Hastings, who lost her precious mom, Mary Joyce Hastings, at the age of 87, to this hospice, so-called compassionate care. Her last day on this earth was December 18, 2018. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Mary Joyce Hastings before Mary Ann comes on and tells us the story. Mary Joyce Hastings was a woman who led a full life and was continuing to enjoy that life. She married George Hastings on October the 17th, 1953, and they would have celebrated their 66th anniversary the following year. She was a devoted wife, mother of five children, living in North Dakota, where her husband George owned and operated Hastings Heating, Sheet Metal, and Fireplace Centers. They had seven grandchildren and 16 great-grandchildren. Mary Joyce was blessed with a beautiful voice and sang at church as well as professionally and recorded both country and gospel music in Nashville. She had the opportunity to visit with Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl on the stage of the Grand Ole Opera and opened shows across the country for Boxcar Willie, Tom T. Hall, and Lynn Anderson. She actually had a 33 album with her beautiful songs on it. And I know that some of you don't know what a 33 album is, but many of you are from that time and remember what that is. She was also a great baker and a cook, and she worked at a pastry store for 14 years. 
which makes me think of you, Cos. Mary Joyce devoted her life to providing service to others and following the word of God. I point this out because she wanted to continue to live, but her life would be ended before its natural time by hospice and her primary care physician who abandoned her after caring for her for years. I guess her age and blood pressure needs were beyond his ability to treat, so he turned his back on her and recommended hospice and, just like that, ceased to care, if he ever did care. Mary Ann and her siblings and niece tried to save her but lost the battle. Since that time, Mary Ann has been trying to make sense of what happened and how to keep this from happening to others. So with that, Mary Ann, I'd like to welcome you to the program and again say how sorry I am for your mom's death. I would like for you to tell us how all of this came to happen to your mom. Thank you, Marsha. Thanks for having me and letting us share our mom's story. Um, we, like many others, that um, we have read their stories on Murder by Hospice. Um, we found ourselves um, in a situation that we'd never been in before. Our parents were both very healthy and um, very active li- lived active lives. Um, the one thing that my mother did suffer with um, is she did have issues with blood pressure, and it had been for many years that she was on blood pressure meds. Um, She had found a doctor that she felt um, was going to oversee her blood pressure, so she switched to him in 2015. And um, she had her pressures pretty much under control until 2017, um, the year of 2017 in April. And she ended up with a back injury, nothing serious, but um, as we get older, you know, our bodies don't work quite the same. And so she was struggling with some back pain. And so that also impacts your blood pressure. And so she ended up in the hospital, um, our local hospital. And while in the hospital, um, the physician, that her primary, came to see her and noticed that um, she seemed like maybe something was happening. She had a little bit of um, a change in her mouth and her blood pressure seemed a bit high. So he put her in ICU. And... Um, I did not know this, as you and I have visited. I now know, because I have all her medical records, that um, she spent a few days in the ICU. They did get her blood pressure under control, and she was discharged back home. But she was diagnosed with a possible CVA, and I did not know what that meant. And, Marcia, you had shared that with me um, through an email, and if you could explain that again, I'd appreciate that. A a CVA is a cerebral vascular accident, and it's a medical term for a stroke, which means that the blood flow to the part of your brain is stopped either by a blockage or the rupture of a blood vessel. So that's that's what her mom had. But at the time, I don't think you guys were even told that, right? Right. I... And my sister and I and my niece and my husband are pretty much have been the care members up here um, because we live close to my parents. And to my recollection, we were never, ever informed that. Um, But that probably was the um, beginning or precipitating factor of what we actually end up with um, a year later. Because when she was discharged from the hospital in 2017, 
she was discharged without a medication we call methadopa. And it was a medication that mom had been on for quite some time and had maintained her blood pressure. Um, once she was discharged, we fought blood pressure up and down from 2017 until August 14th when she ended up in um, the emergency room with this brain hemorrhage. Um, through that time period, though, uh, my sister and I, we did all her meds, put them all in baggies, we administered them. We just wanted to make sure she was always getting the right medications. Um, we asked repetitively why she couldn't go back on the methadopa. She was never put back on it, and we were never given a good explanation from her PCP. Um, again, I like what you said when we started today, trust your instincts. There was starting to be red flags um, for us that maybe we should think about going somewhere else. We maybe should have gotten a second opinion. But by this time, we were very trusting and had developed a relationship with this PCP as well as my mother. So as time went on, um, of course, between the time that she was in in 2017 and August 14th, when she ended up um, being taken to the ER, my sister was taking my father home from the hospital. He'd been in for a few days. And she got home, and my mother was in her recliner resting, and then we took blood pressures periodically. Um, and so my sister took her blood pressure, and it was quite high. And my mom was complaining that her head hurt, and then she had pain in behind her eyes, and her blood pressure was over 200. And so my sister and niece made the right call. They immediately took her to the ER. And when they got her there, um, she was still able to talk and carry on a conversation. You wouldn't know that she had had anything happen to her. In fact, I like to tell the cute part of the story. This is one of the parts of it that makes me um, remember my mom so positively is she needed to use the restroom in the ER, and so she asked the nurse to take her there, and mom walked to the restroom right down the hall. When she came back, she had put all her jewelry, her earrings, her rings, and everything in the bottom of her shoe that she had on and asked us to take all her jewelry so that it would go home with us. So that tells you how she was still so um, cognitively with us and very much alert. And, and, um, and so it hadn't impacted her to the place that we would end up 24 hours later because she did end up in the um, surgical critical care unit because the CT scan did show that she had a brain hemorrhage. So she ends up there. And um, that kind of begins our journey at the hospital with my mother um, and kind of tells you a little bit about how we got to, this, to the hospital. And anyway, um, she was in uh, the critical care unit, and uh, they came out and told us that the thought, they did not think that things would be good. Um, it looked like they weren't sure if mom would come out of it. And so um, family got together, and we are Catholic. So we brought a priest in to give my mother the last rites. And they all got around my mother's bed in the critical care unit. She opened her eyes, and she asked all of us, including the priest, what were we doing there? Hmm. And, and, and uh, again, everyone was quite surprised. You know, we're talking 24 hours later, and, um, you know, she's, She's back, alert, talking to us. And so, of course, we did not have her get the last rites. Um, and from that point forward, she, um, she came back to a place where 
she wanted these um, the intravenous lines and everything out of her. She was very cognizant um, of what was going on, and she wanted to get back into a regular room and go home. Um, of course, that's not possible. Um, she was a, a lady that was on blood thinners, and so they had, you know, done some reversal of that. They were worried about clots, so she needed to be monitored quite um, heavily at this point. And they knew that the next day they recommended that she would have a filter put in. And, again, I'm not a medical person, but my understanding that this filter would be put in to prevent blood clots from traveling from her legs up into her um, lungs or heart, which would obviously then end her life. So the next day she did have that filter put in, and then she was moved to a regular room. So at that point we have a lady that they just told us had a brain hemorrhage, and now she's not even, what, two days later, and she's in a regular room and starting OTPP um, speech. And, I mean, she can communicate and everything. She's, you know, at times she's a bit confused. But you would expect that of someone that has just gone through this much trauma. Right. Um, so now she's, like I said, in a regular room. And family members, um, because we've been caring for my parents, Marsha, off and on for the last, now would be about 10 years, um, it's not only um, as I speak about my, our family and our story, it is not just the hospice program, it's the PCP, it's the hospital setting. We, for the last 10 years, have never left our mom or dad ever, and I mean ever, in a hospital room with or gone to the physician without one of us children accompanying them, and we stayed and slept overnight in the hospital room. That's how dedicated we have been to making sure that our parents get um, good health, good care, and that we know what they're being given for medication and is it the correct dose, is, are they getting the right meds. That's how we had become over the last 10 years. Right. So we literally slept in my mother's room every night. So from the time that she moved to a regular room until the date of the 23rd, which was my dad's 87th birthday, my mother made it very clear to everyone that she wanted to be home by my dad's 87th birthday. So she worked hard to get what she needed to accomplish. She did everything they asked of her in the hospital. She did all the PT, OT, the speech, everything. Um, and she, we started posting some of the pictures on um, Joyce's voice. My niece has been building that um, personal page blog for my mother. And mom was up using a walker. She was eating. Um, she was toilet turning herself. I mean, she was doing awesome. The only problem was is that they could not control her blood pressure. And so the nights that I slept there, my mother was getting an IV of um, a medication to bring her blood pressure down. And in all my mom's medical records, anybody that posts that had anything to do with her from the neurologist um, to the, the other doctors that were seeing her, the notes reflect that my mother's um, blood pressure needs to be maintained around like 140. And anything over that, they didn't want to see her go home. And they stayed it repetitively. So my mom's blood pressure was not being controlled 
um, without giving her an IV. And you can't take that home. You can't do an IV for blood pressure at home. You've got to be on pills. So eventually, um, she is doing so well that the rehab doctor comes in and tells her she's not a candidate to go from the hospital to the rehab and that she is doing so superbly in all the areas that as soon as they get her blood pressure under control, he would recommend she be discharged straight home. So we're all excited about it. She's excited about it. And we're getting closer to the 23rd. And as we get closer and they're still not getting her medication uh, adjusted so we have good blood pressures, what do you think that does to an 87-year-old person? You become anxious, right? You're, you're, kinda, you're, you're wondering, am I going to get to go or not? And we kept telling her, Mom, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We tried to calm her. We wanted her to make sure that she knew that everything was being done to help her get to that place. So the day of the 23rd, my mother did not have the same doctor that had been, um, that was a colleague of her PCP. He went on vacation, and so the PCP was now the one that was going to come and discharge her that day. My mother waited all day until 6 o'clock about in the evening, between 5.30 and 6 o'clock. She was sitting up eating. She had her hair done. She had her nails done. She had makeup on. She was all ready to go home to celebrate my dad's birthday, her husband, of 65 years. And the physician never came and never came until late in the day. You don't usually discharge someone from the hospital from 6 o'clock at night. But, again, he shows up, and by that time, my mom is very frustrated. She's on a potassium drip, an IV potassium drip, and she says to him that she wants to go home. It's her husband's birthday. He looks at the nurse, and he told the nurse, take out the potassium IV line and let her go home. And he took a white piece of paper, and he wrote on it, Um, what medications my sister and I and my niece and my husband should give her for blood pressure, and he discharged her from the hospital at 6 o'clock at night. We were never told that my mom was going to have seizures. We were never told that CT was going to be set up or OT, not by him. We had been told on earlier days from hospital staff that when mom went home that they would put those things in place for her as a home health thing. So everybody knew how well she was doing. I mean, it was amazing. And so uh, he did not spend very much time with her. And, again, we're amazed that she was discharged because now we have the hospital medical records. And my mom's blood pressure had been up in the 190s. And the day before, she hadn't had stable blood pressure. So when you look at all her medical notes, she shouldn't have been discharged. Somebody should have told us it would be against medical advice that this is what can happen to her. She's going to have seizures. The family was never informed. And my sister was there. I was there. My niece was there. My husband was there. So I know we did miss it. And the doctor was not there a very long period of time. By the time my mother was in a wheelchair and getting in the car, they were going to put her in the car to take her home, we could tell that something was changing. And by the time they got her to her home, she did not know it was her home, and she did not know it was her neighborhood. We had no idea, no idea what was happening. So that night, she did not have a good night. Um, my sister was concerned. The next day, she called and let me know, and I called and informed the PCP, like, this is what my mom's night was like. What's going on? And his advice was, we should put her on hospice. Well, what do we put her on hospice for? And we were told that if she would get all these services, 
Um, you know, we would get help. She'd get to stay in the home. She wouldn't have to go back to the hospital. Um, and then we were told that she probably will not be here in six months. We probably were will not be here when? In six months. That she had in probably less months. than six months to live. Yep. Well, but you know, they have to tell you that because that's the magic number that a doctor has to certify that he does not believe the patient will live longer than six months to get them certified. I want to ask you a question. When he, when the doctor came in at 6 p.m., and piece, the, you keep using that term, PCP, that is a primary care physician for anybody who's listening um, when she's using that, her primary doctor that she goes to all the time. But he did not do any vitals. Did they not check her blood pressure before they dismissed her? He just said, remove the potassium, take her off the IV, and discharge her. He didn't check any vitals, right? Because they would have known that her blood pressure was up. Right. In fact, you know, and our recollection, and, you know, two years have passed, so I'm not going to say that I can't make a mistake. I'm not going to be that kind of person, but... We were amazed because um, not checking anything, and then um, she had just sat and ate in a sandwich. They had brought in my sister and my niece, and someone else had went and got her favorite sandwich. We were all eating. It was like boom, bang, okay, yep, you're out of here. And, mm-hmm. uh, again, I have the medical records. I will tell you, Marsha, that one of the concerning things to me is um, when I look at when the discharge papers were done and electronically signed in her medical history, they were not done until 8-28, August 28th. She was discharged on the 23rd, and they were signed at, I think I wrote it down, at 1.49 a.m. So, again, if you're discharging someone from the hospital and you're doing all the vitals and that, wouldn't all that and medications and all that be then put into a record that you are going to send home with us that day? You know, well, like I would think. Dish- right. So to our recollection, and again, I am not going to say 100% that, you know, maybe we, maybe we missed something, but we're pretty on top of it, and we do not ever remember him checking any of that because you would know what a blood pressure is up then. Sure. Right. So we're saying that, that we do not believe that he took her pressures either. So, yep. Um, so from there on, the next day then, um, which was uh, mom went home on the 23rd. The Friday was the 24th. And so once he had, uh, the PCP had indicated we should put her on hospice, and we said, oh, okay. I mean, I think that was the fastest we had someone at our house. I mean, it was at my parents' home. We had this person arrive, sat down to tell us about hospice. Um, my, my sister, who was with my mom 24-7, um, to this day cannot understand why my mother was not part of the intake. Um, if I read the hospice notes, the hospice notes are very inaccurate, a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of things don't match up. Because she says that my mother was pretty much out of it and that my mother was in a chair in the living room sleeping. And I will tell you that my sister and my niece videotaped and photographed my mother every day, all day, from the time that she went in the hospital till the time that she passed. 
And we have pictures of my mother, several of them that day, that they did the intake without my mother, um, with my mother sitting in her chair going through her yearbook and telling me about her classmates and where they were and who they were. That doesn't sound like somebody that was asleep in a chair that should not have been part of the intake process. Correct. She did not even know she was being put on hospice. That's because the, uh, at that point they talk to the family like the individual doesn't have a brain and they can't possibly make decisions that somebody else has to make all of those decisions for them because they are discounting them because they're elderly. Was your dad in the meeting or did my they dad, discount him too? No, I believe that my dad was, my, I believe my dad was at the table. My dad was there. So my okay. dad did know that. And dad, it was and is, dad was mom's power of attorney, of course, you know, in the paperwork. Um, and my sister was the, um, had the primary health care directive authority for my mother. Um, but mom was, mom was completely competent and capable. And now when I read the North Dakota Century Code about what the rules are for hospice, and when I read back through all the pamphlets and information that hospice has online and that they give you, the patient is supposed to be a part of the intake process, if possible. Mm-hmm. Mom That's should have correct. been part of. It. Yeah. So I do feel um, I do feel bad that mother did not get to be a part of that and and have a decision and a say in services and what was going to happen to her once she was put on hospice. So um, she ends up on hospice on the twenty fourth, um, and while she's uh, when we're doing the intake process, and again, um, I encourage anyone that is listening to this that if you have never been through this and now you find yourself faced with a decision, um, there's a lot of questions that we didn't know what to ask um, before I would ever think of ever putting anyone, even if they were close to the end of life. I would want to do a lot of reading and research about who I'm I'm working with and what my my loved one's rights are and how this would play out to the end. Um, because once we, uh, once we put mom on it um, and we sign the paperwork, um, of course, the paperwork says that you can have a, um, an attending physician. So, and I have this paper in front of me because I wanted to make sure I don't misquote anything. It says consent for hospice admission. It has my mom's name and date of birth, date of election, August 24th. And then in the middle of the page, it says you have a right to choose an attending physician. I understand I have a right to choose my attending physician to oversee my care. My attending physician will work in collaboration with the hospice agency to provide care related to my terminal illness and related conditions. Well, now... I, I come back, and, um, of course, Marsha, I always ask for your input if, if I'm saying something that I am not understanding. But to me, um, my, the attending physician was my mom's PCB, PCP. He agreed to be her attending physician. And it says for a terminal illness. Well, now that I look back and I did the research on a terminal illness, um, I'm not so sure that my mom should have even been considered for hospice because of brain hemorrhage that can be either surgically repaired or can be healed through medications doesn't make someone a terminal ill patient. 
You're exactly correct, and that is one of the things that I was trying to drive home earlier tonight. There is a website called Vitas, V-I-T-A-S, dot com, and on that website, when you go through and you look at what qualifies a person for hospice, one of the things listed is they can't dress themselves, they can't feed themselves, they can't clothe themselves, they're in the hospital um, three times within six months, called a frequent flyer, and they can be qualified to become a hospice enrollee. And that's the problem is, yes, more than likely your mother could have been treated. Just My mom could have, was, had congestive heart failure and was successfully being treated with medication. And I don't believe that these people should be considered as hospice. Hospice was originally for someone who could not be treated with medication or with medical procedures like dialysis. But today, because it is such a big money-making conglomerate, then they are allowing people in, like as your mother, that to me do not qualify, should never qualify. They are not actively dying, but it is saving the government money because it is cheaper to euthanize our loved ones than it is for them to go back and forth to the hospital and to incur expensive bills. Um, Michelle Young-Dewar's book, Killing for Profit, lines that out, explains that, why it is that people are now being put into hospice. The hospital does not want them counted on their roles because they get penalized if the person comes back to the hospital multiple times for breathing issues or broken bones um, or you know, even doing the dialysis, it becomes a knock against them. So they want to go ahead and recommend them for hospice so they can get them out of their facility. They don't come back, and it's cheaper to start euthanizing that person. If that person goes over six months in hospice, then the question is, did the doctor correctly identify what the person's issue is because it's supposed to be six months or less. So if someone comes in and is there eight months, ten months, you know, a year, 15 months, then it looks like the doctor didn't know what he was talking about when he referred them, stating that six months or less to live. And that is why, in my opinion, that a lot of times they start eliminating the people. My mother was at eight months. She had been recertified. She was at eight months. She had to die because she was going to start cutting into their profit margin, and it was going to look like maybe she shouldn't have been signed in to hospice because she was not terminally ill and actively dying the same as your mother. Does that answer your question? It does. And okay. I think that, and I agree, and I think in Michelle's book, and I read her book and I highly recommend it to everyone as well, it was, as I said it to you before, I said it to Michelle. Um, when I sent her an email and congratulated her on what a good job she did of telling the story of how accurate she is, um, is that I felt like I was right there alongside of her watching how they cared for mom. Because the idea was, I believe, just what you're saying, that I think my mom became a frequent flyer. I'd never thought of it that way before, but I will now, if, if it's okay that I use that terminology. Um, mm-hmm. I think that both her PCP, I think mostly her PCP had given up on her because she was constantly having to be seen to adjust this blood pressure. 
Um, and he was a provider that gave out his phone number, and you could reach him 24-7. So here you have all these family members trying to regulate blood pressure over the phone, which I don't think is a good idea anyway, but that's the way it was being done. That was another red flag. And then, of course, when you're constantly coming in and out of the hospital and you're the one overseeing the care in the hospital um, as the PCP, I think it got to be too much. And I think my mom became an expendable person. And I am heartbroken that, you know, I did not see it and I didn't recognize it soon enough, but really the right thing at that point would have been, would have been to pull her and to find right. a different position and someone else to start looking after her. Um, I also think that when, and again, I've done a lot of the legal looking on North Dakota Century Code, um, when mom was referred, it indicates that there's supposed to be um, medical records reviewed by hospice, um, and when they work with the PCP, obviously, and they, they were accepting her in as a patient on the 24th, um, you know, there should be some coordination of what is going to be the care, and that should be also discussed with the patient and the family. Um, instead, what did happen was um, that there was the e-kit medications that you talk about. That was one of the things that they talked about the first day, and in the notes, they tell us that we should start giving my mom morphine immediately on the 24th. Now, yeah. my, mom is, my mom is sitting in the chair, not part of this process of intake, and she is not in any pain. Um, the, mm-hmm. one thing that I, the one thing that I think our whole family was smart enough about is we all started asking questions about morphine, but we were told that it does not slow your respiratory. We were told it will not hasten her death. From day one, we were told that. None mm-hmm. of us believed it. And none of us gave mom the morphine. I mean, that was not going to happen on our watch unless mom really did need it somewhere down the road. Right. Well, that, that first day that whole e-kit thing came in, and um, I think that one of the things people asked was, um, you know, what are the medications that were included in it? And I went back and looked, and it's lorazepam, morphine, Zofran, and I apologize. It's something that absorbs the um, um your secretions, it was G-L-Y-C-O-P-Y-R-R-O-L-A-T-E. Those were the meds in the kit that they left us. Was that a patch? Was that last one you said a patch? Nope. Nope, they were all, it was for secretions. They were all um, liquid. No, none of them. Yep, none of them were patches. They were either, and i got to remember, the morphine, Zofran. I think there was, I know the morphine was in liquid form, uh, the lorazepam, um, we Which started out the same with, thing as Ativan. Yep, yep. And on her med list, um, that was also given to her in pill form to help her sleep when she first came home. Um, and then Zobran, of course, was for nausea. And the last one that I told you I cannot pronounce very accurately was to absorb secretions if she was secretions. having trouble falling. Yeah, secretions. Right, which yep. which here's the thing, uh, Marianne, they cause these. The thing is that the drugs are causing the secretions. They cause the nausea, and so they give them something to counteract the nausea that they are causing. 
And like you said, your mother was not in pain. She didn't need morphine. She didn't need the Ativan's um, lorazepam because she wasn't anxious at the time until they started, you know, getting her to be anxious. Her issue was her blood pressure needed to be altered. They needed medication to fix her blood pressure. There are blood pressure medications out there that will will correct the influx of having high blood pressure or low blood pressure. They needed to find out what the magic was, and I believe you said that she was on another um, drug, methotropolol, that they they would never put her back on, and it was working. So why not do something that is going to work and help her because that is not the intent. The intent is to get her off of the books and to eliminate her. They don't want to be bothered, and that's why they immediately started trying to convince you into giving her morphine and Ativan, lorazepam, because it will start to hasten their death, slow their breathing down. Eventually they go into a coma and they die from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. That is the one set, the one kit, the one plan fits all, and it is premeditated murder. Well, and on that same date, on August 24th, when they did the intake, and it was a nurse from uh, hospice that did the intake, um, one of the things that she wanted us to do, of course, was to strip my mother of all her medications. And my mom, we did a tight sheet that we always kept track of my mom's meds. And for some time, they were pretty consistent. We had morning meds and evening meds. We always took a picture of it, and we sent it to any of us so that we all knew what meds our parents were on. If you took them to an appointment, if you took them to the hospital, um, we always wanted to make sure we were up to date. So when they were changed, we would put a new date on it, update the list, and take a picture. So my sister, um, and again, wonderful on her part to, to think about saying this, she was adamant that we were not going to strip my mother of her meds. You know, my mother was on meds for other things as well. Um, she had trigeminal neuralgia and had been to the male. So she was actually taking a medication called carbenzapine for the trigeminal in her face. She was having some issues with it. Um, she was taking... Um, a antidepressant, you know. I mean, you get older, sometimes you can't get out anymore. So there was meds that my mom was taking. She was taking a blood pressure med. So these meds, they wanted us to stop giving her her meds. And my younger sister said, no. You know, we were about mom living, and mom wanted to live. So the intent was mom was fine in the hospital. And if whatever happened to her on the trip home, and now we're the next day, and she's up and moving, and she's eating and drinking, we want to give her her meds. So they did agree to that. And then, of course, they added a pill um, that when she was discharged in the hospital, not only did they add the e-kit, which we did not give her, um, and that is a family's choice. I don't think you should start giving your loved ones medications that they don't need that is going to actually hasten their death. But then they did add um, a medication that she was getting in the hospital called Keppra. So the Keppra and Carbenzapine are going to become very important medications as we journey down this road with mom from the 24th going forward. And this is where we were not educated. I was not educated. Um, I did not know that my mother was going to have seizures. And I now know that Keppra, after reading the, um, all the records and after being at my mom's home, 
on a particular day that I saw the seizure um, that my mom was experiencing seizures. Um, I think that should have been told to us. I think that we should have been told how we were going to, um, what do you do when someone has a seizure and they can't take their pills or their medication? So those drugs are going to become very important as we move through mom at, at her home and what actually happened to her. So, and I don't want to get that. Was the Kepler to prevent seizures? Yeah, on the drug list, which, again, we don't get this. This came when we um, asked for mom's um, medical records. Um, it says, and this is the important part of it, it, uh, it says um, the Kepra extended release, one tablet that she's supposed to take 24 hours by mouth twice a day, and it says that um, comments, it says given the AM and PM for seizures. And then the important part that we now know, and we knew it before mom passed because we had gotten deep into this, it says before re- refilling, evaluate whether we should do pill or liquid. So I don't know about you, but that tells me that Kepra, this Kepra that is for seizures, must come in liquid and pill form. Right. Isn't that what you would Right. And so... We were never told that. We did not have this record that I have sitting in front of me. But we do know that mom was being given um, a pill form of Kepra, that, starting with her meds, when we started giving her meds that, when she got home. That's important because down the road, that, I believe, was the changing point. It's going to be the changer in what happened to her mother. So okay. as we go forward, my mom has good days. Most of her days are pretty good. Um, you know, she's been in the hospital. Um, uh, she's going to have some up and downs. And, of course, now that we know that she has probably some seizure activity, those downs that we were seeing, we could have been probably more proactive and, and no one, if someone would have educated us what was happening, we were not told. Um, and then on the 27th, and I won't go through every day because we would be here until um, way hours in the morning, but what I want to point out as I go through, on the 27th, um, this is how hospice must get their um, recertifications and make sure that they keep the patient um, in their program. Again, my sister and my niece had pictures of my mother um, sitting in at the table, putting on her own makeup in the bathroom, putting on lipstick, and then eating soup out of a dish with a spoon like anybody normally would do at 87 at the table. But instead, the hospice puts in it, she slept consistently, only watching when her family prompted her to go to the bathroom. She had significant difficulty ambulating, even using her walker. She had only sips and bites for the past three days and has been very confused. Well, that's not the case. Wow. Outright lies. And that's what becomes problematic through all the notes. And, um, again, there's been a lot of time spent by my niece on this, documenting and building a PowerPoint and putting things together. The inconsistency of what is in the charting by the nursing staff and the CNAs and what is actually happening with mother, there's, there's such a huge difference. How can that be? And what is the purpose of not doing accurate documentation to ensure that you get to keep her in hospice? Well, let me let me stop if I can at that point. That is what I didn't know this either. And you know, 
one thing people don't realize that they have the right to have their loved ones' records or medical records, and you should request them, and if you don't get them, there are websites that will tell you how to go about getting them. Secondly, I didn't know this, and listening to you talking, obviously you didn't either, but you can request the records from the hospice at the time that your loved one is being taken care of them. So as things are going along, you can request that you receive a copy of those records so that you know what they're saying vice what it is is actually happening because it seems to me they were setting up the case for your mom. Oh, she's not ambulatory. She's not moving around. You know, she's depressed. She's not eating, which were all lies because you saw what she was doing, and this is how they build their case. And I totally would encourage anyone, just as you said, if I was back where I was then and I was more knowledgeable, every week, I would have requested my mom's records from hospice. Right. Because, I, I mean, I realize that working in um, the medical field, that you don't always get your charting done maybe the exact same day. You might have had a lot of patients that you saw, so the next day you've got a chart. So to ask for it every day might be not a doable, but I think once a week that I would encourage people to get those records. And you're right. And look for the inconsistencies. And then exactly. maybe, maybe that's not the right program, you know? Well, this is um, Michelle will say that um, the hospice nurses are drilled over and over again how to chart and how to paint a picture of the patient so that it looks like this patient is dying, they're getting worse, they're, you know, they're starting to break down, and they're going downhill. They, the hospice nurses are taught how to chart and how to do this. So this does not just happen they're taught how to do it. It's manipulation over and over again on how to do this so that when the loved one does die, well, they were just so sick and, you know, they couldn't swallow and they couldn't eat, they couldn't feed themselves anymore and they couldn't get up and go to the bathroom, they were stumbling. But the thing is, if they were doing these things, it's because they caused it with medication. But did they know that you were not giving this comfort kit to her? Did they check in your refrigerator? Did they ask you if you had been given her the um, morphine in the Ativan? Yep, I believe um, on several occasions, and they even say in their notes that um, they know that we were not giving a tour on these various occasions that they would, and they would say in the note, um, encouraged family to follow through with um, morphine for pain. Well, mm-hmm. but if she, if she doesn't have any pain, why are we going to give her morphine? You know, right, exactly. And the lorazepam, which, again, or Ativan, now we know a lot more about that, too, and I believe that became one of, mom's, um, one of mom's demise, is that mom had her nights and days mixed up, and so mom didn't sleep at night. And, of course, part of this is probably from the brain hemorrhage, too, and the trauma to the brain. Um, but she would be up all night. And then during the day, sometimes she would sleep and sometimes she wouldn't. But, you know, you need rest. She needs rest. And so their solution to that, they did try different meds. We did try, um, of course, I heard you mention this one. There was Seroquel tried. There was, um, I have it right here that I was going to share with you. They, they tried, um, 
the different meds that they tried for her to get some rest, which I, again, I'm not a, I'm not a pharmacist, but um, there was um, trazodone, Seroquel. Then they tried another dose of trazodone. Um, and then eventually they went to their go-to, and they had us start giving her some Ativan to sleep. And, again, not a high dose of it. Um, I'm not so sure that that was the right route to go. Um, but, of course, we're dealing with what we think is professionals that are going to help us have mom get rest. Um, it can be good for her to, you know. So we did give her some of the lorazepam. Eventually, we did get her nights and days somewhat straightened around, and, you know, she started resting more peacefully. And then, again, she did have some up and downs. But, and that's another thing that brings back to my memory, is if I ever hear the word rally again from anyone that's in the nursing community and has anything to do with hospice, I think I will have to just tell them i got to walk away. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many, how many times we heard the word when mom did not have the best day, and I don't have the best day every day. Some, day, uh, some days I'm exhausted and I go take a nap on the couch, you know. But if mom didn't have a really good day, um, then she was she was um, on her way out. You know, they would they would tell us that. Um, I was looking for what she wrote in one of these words too. She has her exact phrase. Phraseology is good with them. You know that she oh, um, that death could be imminent or you know like prepare yourself. And then right. the next time, the next time they would come over, and they would tell us, oh, she rallied. And then you'd see in the notes, yep, patient didn't have a really good day, but the next day. She rallied. Well, if you're the nurse and you're coming once a week, you come once a week. If you come to my house once a week, maybe the one day that you come, maybe I have a flu bug. You know, maybe I'm not feeling the best. So their reporting is only on that one day, not what her four or five or six days of great days were. Mm-hmm. And so, again, to me, the documentation is skewed so that it keeps us, uh, and mom in the program, and that's just my how I feel about it. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, so, they're trained. Hey, this is this is a group of people that are trained on how to keep the patient and how to paint them as though dismal, so that any day now death is imminent. They're, you know, look at this. Look at their fingernails. You know, they're slowing down, and, you know, when they put them on a catheter, you know, they're not urinating as frequently. See, there's not as much, you know, urination there, and see how dark it's getting? Well, don't give me any water for a couple of days or very small amounts of water because of the medication that I'm taking, and my urine is going to get dark, too, and there's going to be a whole lot less of it there than there would be a normal person who's eating and drinking water and urinating normally. Yeah, it, it's going to be dark. You're not, it's because it becomes concentrated. You don't have any fluids going through you. Correct, right. But there, um, Michelle says the other thing they're doing is they're conditioning the family so that when they get ready for the kill, you know, the kill shot, the handy Andy, then the family is agreeable to, yes, you know, it's, she, she's struggling and, you know, this has been a long, hard time. And And I think the other thing is you, the family, becomes 
absolutely exhausted because you're hearing every day that you know death is imminent and in mom's case when she rallied when you use that term this is what i thought you were going to say because we would say you know i think she's doing a little bit better you know i I think she opened her eyes or you know we got her to drink just a little bit of sip of water and we rubbed her throat and the nurse would make sure that she could discourage us and say well you know some people have been known to get up and walk around and then they die that evening so you know don't get your hopes up that's what we were told yeah, and that's it's kind of sick. Similar, yeah, very similar story to what we were told too. Because there was a couple times that we had two different nurses in the home, and I can still see them telling us that the one was like on the weekend, and they told us that mom was would likely be gone by Monday, and this was in like September, and then uh, in let's say early September, and then middle of September, my mom got an infection. And a nurse came over. We called a hospice nurse. So they came over. And mom, I told you this, my, but I'll share it for the listeners. My mom's uh, neck was all swelled up. And she couldn't really open her mouth. She was, it was like she was uh, holding squirrels for the winter. You know how that looks? And so we were adamant that this was not related to mom's um, brain hemorrhage and that something was happening. We didn't want to see her choke to death. So, of course, the hospice nurse, the first thing she told us was, we need to give her morphine. And she did give her a small dose of morphine because we insisted that we have her transported to the hospital. And an ambulance came and got her, and we went with, and sure enough, she had an infection and was given an antibiotic injection and then brought back home. And the next day, we have pictures of our mother where the swelling is going down, and later that evening my mom is up drinking her coffee, and they have pictures of her eating again. It's like, but if we would have listened to them, we would have never taken her out of the house because you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to have any interventions, outside services. We would have just started a regiment of morphine and lorazepam, and she would have been put to death much earlier than She would have died in September. Absolutely. She would have died in September. So, That's right. And the problem, the problem now comes after that is, of course, she comes home. And mom is going to have some difficulties now. She's having an antibiotic to get rid of all the infection. And so their solution was also that my mom's medications were stopped. My mom's medications were, dis, were discontinued as of September 17th. So they were afraid of her, you know, choking on the meds, not... Um, not doing well with swallowing. And so rather than, this is where the Keppra and the carbenzatine comes in, rather than at that point telling us, well, let's put her on any kind of liquid medication, they just stopped her meds, her seizure meds. Probably not a good plan. We didn't know this then. We know it now. So it's not until um, sometime when we get into a later September, October, and I'm going to skip forward because mom had some really good days, she was out to Culver. She went to church. Um, she was out in the community. She had some really good time. But then um, in October, um, in October, they restart. So remember now, from September, that date I just told you, in September to October 14th, they, mom does not get those nuts. So mom goes back on Keppra and Carpenzapine October 14th. Now, here's a lady that's going to have seizures and needs these medications. So they started again on October 14th. 
Um, and then again, mom has some up and down days. And by November, um, my mom is, you can tell that my mom has been struggling. My mom has had seizures off and on. No one uh, seems to have a plan for how we're going to treat them, except for a young, one of the nurses comes over to the home on the 20, I'm going to step back to the 29th, and she tells us that mom's definitely having seizures. She takes and she contacts um, and asks in her notes, she asks the medical director or physician of hospice if we shouldn't increase my mother's um, uh, seizure meds. And there were no changes made. So mother continues to have seizures off and on. She has good days and she has bad days. But she's now not eating as much. She's not drinking as much. So she's losing weight. You know, she's getting thinner. And so my sister um, is concerned, and we get the primary nurse to the home, and she tells my sister that you got to make a decision. And the decision the family needs to make is, are you going to put your mom on, um, are you going to have your mom seizure-free and put her on lorazepam or Ativan, or are you going to have her suffer and have seizures? And my sister, you know, basically said, I don't want my mom to suffer, but I certainly don't want her to sleep all the time. And if you give her this Ativan, by now we know what it does to her, you know, she's going to sleep all the time. And so that was the only choice. And Joni asked if she could get these seizure medications in liquid form, because if we could have liquid form, just like you have morphine and liquid, you have all these other drugs that you get in liquid form, then mom could still have her seizure medication rather than not giving her, not, not treating the seizure. And this nurse said that um, it doesn't come in liquid form. But if you remember, when I first started talking with you tonight, that the record that we got that shows her medications, it tells us that the Tepra, they should reevaluate, this was on 827 and 824, they should reevaluate whether, before they ever fill it again, whether it should be a pill form or a liquid form. So the nurse outright lied to my sister. Mm-hmm. And my mom went eight days in a, you can say coma, of Lorazepam slash Ativan, never woke up. And by the time that we realized that that medication could come in liquid form, my sister had contacted the um, our local pharmacy, and found out you can get your seizure meds in liquid form, my mother's life had been altered permanently. She was not the same. She now was, uh, you know, a mirror image of herself. She had difficulty swallowing. She had difficulty talking. I mean, whether we were going to ever get her back to where she was before they put her in that induced coma with lorazepam, mm-hmm. um, it, it was we wondered. And of course that happens in late November. And as we get to the end of November and into December, um, mom's not herself. You know, she, once you have, and again, um, maybe you can help us understand and the listeners. My understanding is when you start giving someone this much of a lorazepam and they weren't small amounts, these were, these syringes that were like half full now. I mean, they were a heavy dose. If you're going to give someone this much of lorazepam, my understanding is that it um, takes all the 
ability of the muscles and the swallowing and that away. So when she yes. was taken off it, she was no longer really able to eat or drink. Yes, it does, so, especially the large amounts that you're talking about. And if she was in a coma-like state for eight days, consider she hadn't been eating, she hadn't been drinking, she, and the body requires, you can live longer without food, but you cannot go without water. And so her body is being deprived, her brain is being deprived, uh, you know, her muscles, everything is atrophying, it's drying up. It's horrible, and it, and it is an incredibly painful death. A hospice is not a compassionate, pain-free death. A hospice death can be incredibly painful. They are masking the signs of pain with the morphine and the Ativan, the fentanyl, Seroquel, Haldol, all of those are nothing more than masks. And yet um, they feel apparently no um, remorse. Um, I, I, we struggle thinking how these, the nurse, the primary nurse, how she could outright lie to us when now when we look at all the documentation, she had to know from day one that, that those medications came in liquid form and that mom should have been given them in liquid form from day one. So for us, I, for me personally, and I can't talk for the whole family, everybody's independent, I totally feel that um, she is highly responsible for the fact that mother was given the lorazepam rather than the seizure meds, um, and that should have never happened. Right. You're absolutely right, and she is complicit. Um, I, I want you to back up because we missed something here that I think is really important. Um, on the 27th, when you had asked about her legs, because her, her legs were hurting and starting to swell, what oh, yeah. did she talk to her primary care physician and said what, and what he, did he say? Yeah. Um, we had gotten permission from hospice to take mother to her primary care provider because she had that filter, and she was getting that swelling in her legs and feet. And so she, we went with, and she said um, that she wanted she wanted to have an ultrasound. And anyway, he said he wasn't going to do anything for her, and she said, but I don't want to die. And he said, I'm not going to do anything for you. We all have to die someday. And he did nothing for her. And when she went to the hospital for that swelling in the neck, I also have the note from hospice that he told hospice, and I'm not going to admit her. So regardless, even if my mother had changed, and mom, I shouldn't say changed her mind, if my mother or us had said, we want nothing more to do with hospice, we want my mom admitted right now, he was not going to be the admitting doctor. He was done. But let me make this real clear to our listeners. You can revoke hospice at any time. If you decide, and in your case, if you had decided, you know, mom's going to be admitted to the hospital, she can be admitted to the hospital, you revoke hospice, you do it verbally, you turn around and you do it in writing, I'm revoking you, we're not coming back, she's not going to be in hospice, and she goes to the hospital and receives care there, period. Hospice is no longer part of the equation. You do not have to keep that. No one should ever feel that they can't do that because if I had my, if I had that opportunity, she would have stayed in the hospital that day. 
but but you, know, you don't you can't know. And that's, yep. that's the whole reason for these discussions, so that you know what your rights are and you know when you're being duped. And we're not medical people, and we don't know. We trust right. them, and we shouldn't. And that's, you know, that's where we're at. So go ahead. I, di- I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to go back to that. Okay, no, well, you're I'm at the end of November now. Right. And then, of course, um, you know, she ends up, my sister ends up getting her the liquid medications um, for the carbenzapine and the Keppra because now we know that that's what she needs. But really, things never really did turn around for mom. Um, She could really not say much. Um, You couldn't really hear her. She wasn't eating now or drinking or if she was, it was very minimal. Um, And so she was getting very thin. But then again, she had what they called their, her rally, and I, I believe um, you saw that picture. I think it was on the 7th. I sent you that picture of December 7th. Her brother came to visit her, and it was a beautiful picture of mom. You know, she was sitting up, and she looked good and everything. Um, but again, you can't go this long without nutrition and fluids. Mm-mm. And I, I just want to make the listeners aware of something else we learned, and it is in the brochure. Um, and we asked about it in a meeting with hospice after my mom's um, death, that my mom was entitled to have IV fluids, and so she should have been given fluids because the likelihood is the dehydration is also what took her down. Um, and, of oh, course, most, asked, yes. No, go ahead. No, you're absolutely right. It's the dehydration that is so, so critical. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so... Um, we didn't know that we could have required it. We also, but we did ask for therapies. As we saw in the early months that mom, you know, she'd been in the hospital. Um, she was, you know, not doing a lot of exercise. You're recuperating. We asked for PT and OT to come to the home. Um, and, again, that's in the brochure of hospice, that that is part of what the services they offer. And their way around it, of course, it would have cost them money out of their um, payment from Medicare is they would have had to pay for the services. So their way around it was they told us that, well, we don't think she's strong enough. Well, if she's pushing her walker and going to the toilet and putting her makeup on and sitting at the table eating and is walking around the table without her walker to close the blinds on her window, I think she's strong enough to have PC and OT services. I think you're right. And she never got those either. And, again, these are all things that are videotaped or photographed that actually took place for mother. I mean, mom was a very strong, healthy woman. She really was done in by the system called hospice. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, she's, I mean, she's a frail woman by this time. And, you know, you're fighting an entity that you don't understand, that you can't compre- possibly comprehend what's going on behind the scenes. And you're in shock at this point. You're all in shock, and you've watched your mom decline over this period of time because she hasn't been given sustenance. And the medication they're giving her is putting her into a deep sleep. It, you know, it causes depressed respiratory functions, hallucinations, mood change, not being able to eat, not being able to swallow. You become, your whole body becomes atrophied just laying in bed like that. If a person is laying around like that, you know, for several weeks, regardless of how healthy you are, you're going to need to get some type of PT training to 
get yourself back to the point where you can walk again because your muscles and everything will atrophy. Correct. It, it, it's cool. That that's it, it is just amazing to me how cool it is, but yet we see it, but we just can't wrap your head around that these people who sign a HIPAA agreement are so cool and that they are killing your loved one right in front of you and we are powerless because we do not have the knowledge. We don't comprehend. That's why we do these shows. That's why there are many websites out there that have information, you know, the halo that I was talking about, um, Life Legal Defense Foundation. I mean, there are groups out there that concentrate on this, the 10-day law. Every state has a right-to-life group, you know, Texas Right to Life, California Right to Life, Georgia Right to Life. They all have a right-to-life group, but we don't know that those exist because you can't fathom that someone in the medical arena is killing your loved one. How how can we possibly think that that was something that would ever happen in our lifetime or in anybody's lifetime? Right, she actually would, mother would have had a much better chance when we now sit back if we would have put her on home health, and that was um, really something. My dad was on home health at this time, so we already had providers coming in. If mom could have been put on home health, she would have had a fighting chance. But when you have um, nursing staff that this is their mission, and then the other thing I wanted to make sure I touched on is that the CNAs, we had good CNAs, we had not so good CNAs. When they check off that they did oral care, and I know I shared with you that back twice during mom's stay in this August 24th to her death on December 18th, she had uh, an infection in her mouth. They call it thrush. And if you've ever seen it or you Google it and you open up the mouth, it is just like you go into a tavern where stalactites and stalagmites are, and it's all stringy. And her mouth was full of it. My sister and my niece were cleaning her mouth out with tweezers so that she could swallow and she could drink. And part of that comes from not having oral cares that are being checked off that they did and the Mm -hmm. fact that if you're not drinking, my understanding is if you don't drink and you don't eat and you don't swish anything ever in your mouth, of course you start getting a bacterial infection in there. And twice moms have that. And so I think that they did her injustice. They never really fought to help get her to a place of really being healthy and back on her feet. They did the minimal, and I do think, and I can't speak for my whole family, but I think that we're all in the same place. I think that it was kind of their venture from day one that the sooner we're done, the quicker we're out of here and we move on to the next. You're absolutely right. Their intent is not to make the patient better. Their intent is not to give medication. Their intent is not to treat. If they get a urinary tract infection, they don't treat a urinary tract infection. They don't treat thrush. Their intent is when you get on is that you're going to die in six months or less. And if if they can talk the family into immediately giving the morphine and the Ativan, they can be rid of you in five to ten days in your home in your home and have you be the one administering the drugs to them and you will have no clue that it happened and if if the person 
you know, has any issue, like you say, you know, when they said something about her mouth, well, give her morphine. No matter what, she got a headache, give her morphine. Oh, yep. her side hurts. She's got, she's nauseous. Let's give her morphine. Let's give her some more Ativan. Let's give her, because she's got secretions, let's put this patch on there and take this. She's nauseous. Well, let's give her this for the nauseous. But let's continue to give her the morphine and the Ativan. There, it is the most horrible injustice I have ever personally witnessed of how an elderly person who has the right to life is snuffed out slowly, cruelly, and painfully. And it is. You know, and I, I mean, you know that I totally agree with you, and that's why I agreed to do this. You know, um, I think, too, that I don't understand, and I won't until someone can explain this to me, when, when you look up your century code in your own state on what your hospices are regulated under, because you have to have a law that they run under in each state, when you look up and it says that the family is part of the service plan, the care plan meeting, I want you to know that not once, and I think I shared this earlier, not once was this family, not one member, ever part of any service plan meeting. They call it um, an interdisciplinary group. We were never asked to be a part of it, and when the nurse made her phone calls to that team or went or had any calls with the hospice, main hospice office or her medical director, they were done out in the garage away from the family. How can that be family patient-centered care and allowing the family to help make decisions for the loved one? It is. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. The, their intent is not to provide compassionate care for the individual. They do not include the family, the patient or the family, in the process, and they do not have consent to give these drugs. They do not tell the family or the patient what is going to happen when they start taking these drugs. It is going to hasten your death. They're not going to tell you that. To me, again, it's the biggest crime in the century, what hospice has become. It, it just you. is. So we, we have three minutes left. Um, so your mother, and I'm so sorry, but your mother died on December the 18th, 2018. She lost the battle, and your dad is now 89, I believe. Dad, yep, dad's 89. Yes, and he is still living with you and your sister alternately, and you as I, my dad will be 93 in two months, and I will protect him from anybody doing anything to him, and that's what you're going to do with your dad. And I am warning the rest of the listeners to protect yourself and your loved ones. Is there anything you want to say before I close us out? No, I just appreciate allowing us to tell our story, and um, please keep up the um, bringing out the information, and I just also warn everyone, ask questions and be careful. Exactly, exactly. Um, Next Wednesday, we have Anne O'Meara from HALO organization coming on. She's going to talk about their helpline that they have and a lot of the information that is in the links that I talk about. So that will be a very informative program next Wednesday. 
And I'd like to thank all of our listeners tonight for listening in and those who go online. And, Marianne, I appreciate you coming on and telling your heartfelt story. Marty, as always, appreciate you giving us the opportunity to talk real about what's going on. So educate yourself to to our listeners. Don't listen to what you're told. If it looks like something's amiss, um, trust your instincts. Pull your person out of there. You don't have to stay. Good night, everyone. Good night, Marianne. Yep, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. All righty. Yep. Bye-bye.